Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus to, by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this first section of Ephesians, this first bit of Ephesians that I'm reading from, is going to be our first section. To understand this, I want to give you a quick background of the book of Ephesians. This is written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a city which is located in modern-day Turkey. So if you think of, of the map, you have you know Europe, you have Africa, you have Asia. Turkey's kind of stuck in the mix in the middle of all that over there with the Mediterranean Sea coming in. Ephesus was off of the Aegean Sea. So if you were to go underneath Italy, underneath Greece, come up the Aegean Sea, you'd be smack dab into, into Ephesus. Ephesus is a port city. Like any port city, that makes it an affluent city, right? So this is a city where they have a lot of trading going on, a lot of diversity, a lot of wealth. If you were going to compare Ephesus to a city today, you would compare that to New York City. It would be very similar to things that are going on in New York you'd find in Ephesus. Ephesus was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple to the goddess Diana. So Diana was also known in Greek mythology as Artemis. So this was a huge temple, very well studied. This was a big part of their life. The Apostle Paul is the author of this, of this book. He's writing to Ephesus. He had spent three years in Ephesus. So we know Paul was a missionary. He went around all of, uh, all of that eastern end of Europe, all the way out into Italy, and some even say as far as Spain, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and establishing churches as he went. Ephesus was, had already had a church in it, but when he got there, it was a young church, and he spent three years of his time building that church up. That's one of, there's, in between that and the church at Corinth, this is one of the churches he actually spent the longest time in. So that kind of shows you his heart towards the church at Ephesus. He's writing to them from prison. So he's a prisoner while he's writing this, and that also lets you know his concern. He's locked away. He can't get to this church that he cares about so much, so he's spending time to write to them from prison. So in verse 20, it opens with, now to him. The him that's being referred to there is obviously God, right? We're referring to God. Earlier in chapter 3, it talks about how God, it's a prayer from Paul that God would establish the believers at Ephesus, that he would help them to grow in their faith, that they would become strong Christian believers. And he's praying for all these things to strengthen in their belief. So Paul is referring back to that God who he's trusting to build up these believers, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So he's saying that God can do more than we could ever imagine. Right? We are limited we are limited because our world is limited. We're in this finite world. We're in a box of reality that we deal with. We cannot see past what we know here. But we got to remember, God is outside of time, 
God is outside of the limitations of the creation. He is the creator. So he can easily do more than we could ever understand. He is bigger than all that we know. So he is not limited to the same things that we are limited to. So in a sense, our minds are actually stunted, and we can never fully understand how much our God can do. And then it says, according to the power that works in us. So according to the power that works in us, that is letting you know that he can do so much because of what he has done already. The power that is work in you, the power that's working in each of one of us, is that saving work that Christ started at the cross, and the Holy Spirit is working until the day of completion when we stand in glory with Jesus in heaven. The fact that God has been able to pay the price for our sins, to remove sin from us completely, is making us pure day by day, right? That's Romans 12 teaches us that God is slowly transforming us into the image of Christ. Every day we're slowly becoming more Christ-like. We're seeing the sins of this world in us and we're pushing them off and we're slowly transitioning to be more righteous, more holy. The fact that God is doing that is proof positive that he can do amazing things. I'll tell you personally, I know myself. I know my flaws and shortcomings. I tell you, there are a lot of them, right? I am by far not a perfect person. There's four people sitting up there that could confirm how imperfect I can be. They know me better than I know me. But the fact that God could take this mess, pull me out of the mire and clay, dust me off, wash me off, and put me and stick me to speak in front of you fine folks today, that's a sign that our God can do really great stuff. He is big. He does big works. He put me here, right? You guys have to deal with me, but he put me here. So that is all the proof I need to know my God can do great things. Then it goes on in verse 21. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Glory. God deserves all of our glory. Everything he's done gives us reason to glorify him. Because he saved me, because he's cleansing me, because he's changing me from a heathen, self-centered person to becoming a person more like his image, and it's going to be for all of us. It's never a finished work while we're breathing still, right? We're always going to struggle. You know, we're always, just like our, 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 uh, our first song, our first hymn said, this is my father's world, it's always a battle. The battle's never ending. But because he's constantly at work trying to strengthen us, he deserves our glory. He's the only one that deserves any glory. Are any of you familiar with the West, Westminster Shorter Catechism? Show of hands if you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So catechisms are, this was written in the 1640s, so way older than all of us, right? It's been around for a while. Uh, a lot of people look and say, ah, oh, catechisms, that's old stuff. That's really old, and we don't need them. Those creeds, they're old. We're, we're, in, we're in the 21st century, the digital age. You know, all this stuff is useless. 
These things are great. The catechisms are basically a series of questions and answers. And they explain to you basically the, the core doctrines of Christianity. They are great to learn. They're great to understand. They help you understand what we believe and why we believe it. But the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Why are we here? That's a question everybody's asking. You know, what am I here for? What am I here for? And its answer is amazing. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So anyone that's studied those catechisms, you can look at them and say, what's the chief end of man? And they will rattle off right back to you. Man's chief end is glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. Because of what he's done, he saved us so we can bring him glory. We cannot truly find enjoyment because if we're not, if we're not glorifying God, we're not living up to our purpose. You know, anyone that's not filling your purpose, you always will feel empty. You're missing the mark. You, there's something more. But I tell you, when you glorify God, that's when you walk away and say, wow, that was great. That was an awesome moment. I'm so happy. I'm overfilled with joy. And that's how when we, we can enjoy him forever and when we do enjoy him forever, when we have that enjoyment in God, that lasts through everything else. That supersedes every other thing we're going through. All the bumps and bruises of life are nothing when we're living in perfect harmony with our maker. When we're enjoying him fully, we can go through all things. That's where we see the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and carries us through. So that is our calling. Our calling, our purpose, is to glorify God. And that's what we figure out from our first set of scriptures reading today. Our second set of scripture is going to be Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Verse 1 starts with, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here we see in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, Paul is reminded of the Ephesians of his imprisonment. If anyone had a reason to say, God, you don't deserve my glory, it would be Paul. You know, we look through scriptures, we look through, you want to see the list of things that Paul enjoyed, the rewards Paul received for his dutiful sacrifice to the Lord, please open up to 2 Corinthians. When you get home today, read through 2 Corinthians, and Paul rattles off a list of the things that he will boast in. And like I said, this is a man who's been all over the known world in that area spreading the gospel of Christ, and what he boasts in is all the times he was beaten, rocks thrown at him, whipped, shipwrecked, 
robbed, abandoned. It is a list of something that you look and say, this poor guy has been through it all. Like this guy's, this guy's life's horrible. Like if this is, this is what he signed up for. He signed up to go through such pain and misery. And then the cream of the top, the, the icing on the cake is, where does he wind up? He's in jail. You guys know what he's in jail for? The gospel. He's in jail for preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Heaven forbid, such a horrible thing. He went out, he preached the gospel to Gentiles. The Jewish authority was super angry that he would tell Gentiles that they could come and have a faith with the true and living God, the God of uh, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. They were super angry. You can't tell these people that they can just come into faith like that. They can't just believe and receive Christ. No. So they made life miserable for him. They set him up. They caused a big issue for him in Jerusalem, and he winds up going to jail for it. While he's in jail, he's in jail for a while. Sometimes are not as good as others. He actually gets shipwrecked in the whole entire scenario, heading out to heading out to Rome, where he winds up, and where this is written from. He suffers a lot. He has more than enough reason to say, "Lord, I did what you told me to do. I lived. I put I put feet to my faith. You called me to go out." And my calling, you said I was to go out and preach to the Gentiles. I did everything right. You know what? This is what I received back. But he doesn't. He looks and he continues to do the work from prison. So much as he writes in later epistles in the second imprisonment, he writes and talks about how even the household of Caesar starts coming to the faith because he's just in there glorifying God the whole entire time. He keeps glorifying God nonstop. He keeps reaching out to the churches, and he doesn't consider himself a prisoner of Rome. Though he's under Roman bondage, he considers himself a prisoner of the Lord because it's by God's will that he is there. Now, that's a whole other sermon I can go into with that, and you guys want to be home before supper, so I will not dive into that end of it. But here we see a man who really understands glorifying God is his chief fulfillment. He will find true joy in glorifying God. Then he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with what you were called. All right, so walk worthy of the calling, all this stuff. This is like, it's become Christianese. Ah, oh, walk worthy of the calling. You know, we, we throw this phrase around, and a lot of times, you know, we don't really know what it means. So we're going to break it apart a little bit. First off, beseech, he's just pleading with them. He's begging them. Please, by all, all effort, everything, everything you have, walk worthy. What's it mean to walk worthy? Pretty much it means, in a Christian sense, it's to take the doctrines that you're being, beginning to understand and to put them into practice. Or in even simpler terms, take what you're taught and apply it to your life. So to walk worthy is just basically taking what you're taught. He's saying, take what I'm teaching you and apply it to your life. Live it out. Live out what you're you're being given. Or as I like to say, is you take your marching orders and bring God glory. Now, what's the calling? As we saw earlier, we know in basic sense the calling is to bring God glory. 
So he's saying, you know what? Let's put feet to our faith, live it out. Let's live in a way that brings God glory. So the next two verses are going to explain how to do that. It's going to get practical. Verse 2, with all lowliness. Lowliness can be translated into humility. So that means, in the simplest sense, is to put others before yourself. It means life is not all about me. You know, I didn't come to Christ until I was 24 years old. So I spent the first 24 years of my life thinking that life was all about me. This was the Mike show. And I was the star. And everything was about what I needed, what I wanted. And if it wasn't pleasing me, it was no good. If it was pleasing me, I'd accept it. And that's how life went. You could imagine how shocked I was when I came to faith and realized this has nothing to do about me. And it's all about God. But also, in the same sense, how much easier life got. Because when I'm trying to please me, I'm a pretty harsh boss. I, I demand a lot out of myself. I can't keep up with myself. You know, constantly wanting more, more. I need more of this. I need more of that. I couldn't please myself. But then I come to Christ and I realize he says, You're, you should be living to please me. I go, oh, man, I got to live to please God, the creator of heaven and earth? This, how do I do that? And he smiles and says, well, you know what? My, my burden's light. My yoke's easy. And you see, it's not much to please him. It's not much to bring him glory. It's very simple in action. The next set is to live in gentleness. Gentleness can be translated meekness. I like how Matthew Poole puts this. He says, not easily provoke or offended by the infirmities of others. When you read the word infirmities, when I hear the word infirmities, right away you think about physical sickness, phys physical inabilities. I'm sure Matthew Poole wasn't just limiting it to that, but not just that, but also mental infirmity and spiritual infirmity. And realistically, spiritual infirmities can be the most burdening from people around you. But if we're going to live in gentleness or meekness, we're not going to let those things bother us. I like to put it in my own words and say, don't let the people around you get under your skin. That's the simplest way to think about it. So when you're dealing with someone next to you, when you're dealing with someone else, we're not focused on their shortcomings. We're not sh focused on their annoyances. If we are truly being humble, if we're truly being humble, gentleness is a natural outflowing. If we're humble, if we're putting ourselves beneath everyone else and we're putting the needs of others before ourselves, when they are needy, when they are burdensome, we're looking saying, that's awesome, I get to serve them. That's where I should be. I should be taking, I should be helping them. I should be building them up. So this becomes a natural outcropping from being humble is to be meek. And then Paul throws in there long-suffering. And this is where things get rough. Because I can be pretty humble and I can be pretty meek. I'm pretty good at doing that for a couple seconds, a few minutes. I can do it for minutes. I'll give you minutes. You get past the minutes to the half hour, hour, I've lost it by then. 
You know, I'm dealing with someone, they're irritating me. By, by the time I've dealt with more than five, ten minutes of it, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing in a towel, right? Long-suffering means to be patient, to deal with those people who grate on you and irritate you and be patient in it. And through that patience, we can continue to bring glory to God. Now, I'm going to get vulnerable with, vulnerable with you guys. I'm going to tell you guys about a, rela- a relationship that I had, a relationship that I had with uh, a friend of mine. So before I, was, before I was married, when I was still a single guy, I had a friend, and he just irked me. Every, everything about him irked me, but I'd hang out with him, but I, didn't, I couldn't stand him long. And then my wife, Kira, while she was still, while we were still single, our friends were single, she had a friend that really irked me. And would you guess it? You know what God decided to do to me? He had them two get married. They got married, and guess what they became? They became a couple that really irked me. Drove me crazy. I got irked. I got irritated. But honestly... Did they change? No. You know what they got? They just got more annoying. I, I'm the one who had to put up with it. And honestly, it's not until the last couple of months they've come back into our lives, I started seeing them around, that God started beating me down saying, you're wrong. You're supposed to put up with these people. You're supposed to be patient. Bear with them. They're more than you. They're better than you. Don't view yourself as better than them. Be humble. And since then... I've had conversations with them, and realistically, I really enjoy it. I enjoy talking to them. Though they haven't changed, I can look and say, you know what? I'm going to be humble. I'm going to put their needs first. I'm going to actually care about them a little bit. And through that, I'm like, wow, God, I enjoyed that time. I really can bring you glory through this. I can be excited for you. So through that, we're I'm able to better glorify God. I'm better able to enjoy him. I hope I'm not the only one that... Horrible. I'm hoping that some of you guys are irked by people too. I'm not the only one that's irked, but hey, you never know, right? Then we're told to bear with one another in love. Ultimately, bearing with one another's love, Jesus explains, is the back half of the Ten Commandments. That's the back end. The first half is love God. The second half is love others. If you can do that, you can uphold and live out the Ten, ten Commandments. And if we're loving one another... All this comes together. We are able to be united. And through that, verse 3, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. We should always be consistently looking to be living at peace with those around us, the other members of the body of Christ. We're here to encourage them to live with each other in a way that we are one. And that goes into verse 4, where Paul, verses 4 through 6, Paul starts laying out common grounds, the common ground that we have to help us to understand why we should be united. First in verse 4, he says, there is one body. He tells us that we are all one. Though we look and we say we're all individual people, ultimately we are one body. To understand this better, you can read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is all about being one body. Most Applicable is 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where it explains to us that if one member of the body suffers, all the members suffers with it. And Paul actually goes out to discuss about 
the human body as if an eye was upset with an ear and said, I have no need of you, you know, the eye wouldn't be able to hear and all this other stuff. To put it in basic terms, I'm right-handed, right? My right hand does everything. If my right hand was to look at my left hand and say, you're lazy, you do nothing for me. We're going to get rid of the left arm. You're gone because I do all the writing. I do all the work. You're just dead weight. You're carried around. I'd be very upset with that. I would have nowhere to keep my watch, and you guys would be stuck here until the sun starts going down, right? Left hand comes really important, right? It, it serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. They might not see why. We might not see the purpose each other is serving, but we're all one body. And if one member is suffering, we are really all suffering with that member. We're also, we're also led by the same spirit. We're of one spirit. That means the same Holy Spirit that's at work in me is at work with in each of one of you. As when we come to believe in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell with us to be our guide, to be our teacher. So when we're dealing with stuff and we're saying, I don't get, get where this person's coming from, they're not off their rocker. They're just hearing the spirit differently than you are. Granted, the spirit never works in contradiction to the Bible. If one of you guys were to come up to me to, after service today and say, you know what, you're right, the Holy Spirit's been working on me, and he's been explaining to me that Jesus Christ is the brother of Satan, and one day I'm going to be my own God, at that point I'd say that doesn't line up with Scripture, and you are off your rocker. But as long as everything lines up with Scripture and we don't see eye to eye, that's just how the Holy Spirit is moving on each person to see the same issues differently so he can be God can be glorified the most then it says we have a hope we have one hope of our calling we're all headed toward the same place right we're all on a trip life is a journey right life is a journey the world says that we say that life is just a journey this is all a path and we're all going to the same place where are we going where are we headed to where's home Heaven. We're all going to heaven. We're all just on a road trip to heaven. And because of that, because we're all heaven-focused, that's where we're going. It's like being on a bus with each other going out to see sight and sound. We're just getting together, enjoying this temporary place because we have a permanent home. If we know that this is all temporary and we have a better calling, things that happen here are not that important. We're all like-minded. We're heaven-focused. That helps us to be able to deal with differences. And then in verse 5, it says, One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We have one Lord, our, Je- our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's our one and only. He's, we have one God, three unique persons, but he is one God. And he died for our sins, and that is our faith. Through trusting in the work that he did on the cross, that he died, and in his death, paid the penalty for every sin we have that we ever committed, we ever will commit, and the whole world has committed. We trust in that. We know our sins are cleansed, and by seeing his resurrection, we have hope and knowledge that we will rise again one day when he calls us home with him. We have one baptism. We have one baptism. Uh, So, John, I'm just going to go for it if you're listening. I'm sure John is. So this is a message on unity, and I really don't understand, I don't know what you guys practice in baptism, but I'm going to 
speak what this speaks of. There's a sense that some teachers look at this and talk about a spiritual baptism, where when we come to faith, we are all baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely true. There's no doubt about that. We all have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A lot of other teachers believe that this is talking about water baptism. This can become a very contentious topic. And I'm doing a message on unity, and here I am diving into something contentious. I promise to be brief, and we can have a long discussion afterwards about it. Uh, water baptism throughout Scripture has always been a picture of an outward decision. Through John the Baptist baptizing, through Philip the Evangelist baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, we see baptism consistently as a person comes, accepts Christ as their Savior. They decide to be baptized as a picture of, as Romans puts it, as being buried with Christ and being raised again to new life. That is something that we see in the Bible as always being done with an adult, uh, not infant christening or bap- infant baptism as some religions do. That's why I believe this is disgusting. Of course, that's a family debate. We can debate and go back and forth on what it really means, but I would encourage you to think about that because there is something powerful in the picture of being baptized, making that outward declaration that Christ is alive in me and I am dead to myself. But again, like I said, no reason for us to see see uh, at odds with this. It's a family debate. Then it finishes off in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And this is the linchpin of what keeps us together. This is where everything hangs on. We have one God, one creator, one who formed everything, who knows us intimately, has known us since before we were born, and knows us to the very last breath we will take, and has very intimate knowledge of everything we will ever do. We have one God. We all have that same God. And he is above all of creation. Though there are so many things that try to rival him, and we see that in Isaiah, where Satan tries to say that he could ascend to the throne of God, there's so many things out there telling us that God is fake and Nietzsche saying God is dead. Our God is above all. He is powerful. He is alive. He is active. And he is through all. He is unescapable, just as Jonah found out. was He was trying to flee from Nineveh. Jonah found out when he was stuck in the stomach of a giant fish that our God will find you wherever you go. He is everywhere. And... Most importantly, he is in us all. Our God is in each and every one of us. He indwells in us in the way of the Holy Spirit. When you accept him as your Savior, he comes and makes home with you. It's the most beautiful picture. I love the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 16, where he talks about how we are in him. All of those who believe, we are in with God, we are a part of God, and God's a part of us. As being believers, we are united with Him. So, if we're united with God, how much more should we be united with each other? We shouldn't allow little squabbles, little issues to cause us to build up walls. Because when we build up walls, when you build up walls, I love this room because we have these big stained glass murals and they allow the light to shine in. Those are areas where the walls are not built up. 
But if we had walls built up all through these windows, how much light would we be allowed to get out or come in? When we build up walls, we hide the light. When we build up walls in the body of Christ, we're hiding the light. The world out there doesn't get to see the glory of God because we're not glorifying the way we should. If we want to be the city on a hill that Jesus commands us to be, we need to start by glorifying God and knocking down walls that are building up. I look around here, and if you guys could take a second and look around and look at the spaces in between each of you. Many of the people who used to sit in those spots have gone to their final reward, and it's awesome. We're going to get to see them one day, and we will, and it's going to be great when we're reunited with them. Many others have moved away, and they got the big calling to the villages in Florida, and they're hanging out, and God's using them down there. Praise God. They're, they got great suntans, and they're driving around in the golf carts. That's awesome for them. Right? We're still stuck in New Jersey. Then there's the, the few others that may be coming to mind that left because they lost that sense of unity. They lost that sense of love. You guys know who those people are. My encouragement to you is through this week, think of those who are not here because they feel out of place. They, they don't feel the unity anymore. And help break down those walls. And if you're starting to build up any walls, if there's something that's bothering you, tear Mr. Gorbachev, tear down, the, tear down this wall, right? Let's tear down walls. Let's be wall breakers. Let's be unified. And as we're unified, it's amazing what God will do, the light that will shine. One candle on its own, it's nice. Beautiful candelabra put together is powerful. Be powerful, especially as we're going into this season and we're going to start moving the church outside of these walls. Let's be unified together. Don't allow the enemy to come in to cause it for reason to divide, but be united so that we can shine, make an impact, and the people in this community can come to realize there's something different here. There's something fulfilling. Because just as much our, our calling is to glorify God, their calling is the same. Every human being has the same calling. And if they see it being done and they catch the fulfillment that you're getting, they're going to want that fulfillment too. And we can explain to them how they can come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They can start to glorify him and enjoy them. And we can make an impact. We can make a difference. We can start to see things change in South Ambor. Start to see it start here and move on. And we can change the world with just a little bit of time here.